0: We're in this series called The Best Christmas Ever, and uh, you know, there's some chaos in this season. There's a rat race that we find ourselves in, but please don't lose the the purpose of why we celebrate even to begin with. When we think about Christmas in the past as a kid, the truth is that most of the reasons why we thought that Christmas was awesome was because we got a gift that year that was just off the charts, right? I went to social media and I asked the question, what was that one gift that when you think about it was the best Christmas you get, you get, gift you got as a kid, what was it? For me it was electric football. Now, because it was such a cool gift, okay, in the 70s, anything that had electricity in it and football, that was awesome, but I didn't even think it was even possible that I would get that gift. And so when it, when it arrived, man, it was great. But I, I heard from people who said uh, they got their first pair of Air Jordans. That was their greatest gift, you know. Uh, several people said they got a puppy. I think that's a terrible gift, okay. Because that gift comes, it leaves gifts all the time after that, right. And then there were, <laughs> there were people who said, uh, let me see. Uh, oh, our drummer, uh, Dan, he got his first drum set. Think about that. You, you go check out my, my Facebook page, you'll see a picture of him. He said that He's said, the happiest kid on the, in the entire internet. There's a picture of him right there. Some people said, um, oh, one guy said he got rock 'em, sock 'em robots. Uh, a couple people said they got their first bike. Another person said they got Stretch Armstrong. You remember Stretch Armstrong? It was like a Ken doll, but only you could stretch it out like that. And then one guy said he got his Empire Strikes Back Millennium Falcon. Every young boy needs that, right? And he just, he admitted that he had just recently sold all of his Star Wars stuff. And I sensed a little bit of pain in the moment, yeah. One lady said, and I'll close with this, she got the Kermit the Frog telephone. Weirdest thing I think I've ever seen, okay? Okay. She gave us a picture of that too. There's all kinds of these things, right? And in that moment, it was just like a high watermark for us as a kid, right? The older we've gotten, though, we've realized that the gifts and the presents aren't really what make Christmas great. And hopefully through this series, The Best Christmas Ever, you're going to join us as we look at the things that made that first Christmas so special, And as we do, we'll come to the realization that it truly, that first Christmas was the best Christmas ever. On January the 13th, 1946, something happened that had never happened before in the Dick Tracy comic strip. What happened was Dick Tracy was seen wearing a futuristic gadget on his wrist. It's called the wrist radio. And he could talk to the chief of police through this radio. 1946, remember? The result of this picture, and it began appearing after this. This was one of his gadgets that he was, he was known to use. Kids began imagining, what would life be like if I had a Dick Tracy watch? Even though they knew it was impossible, this was so futuristic, it would never happen. Fast forward a few decades, two brothers from Connecticut, Nick and Charlie Mathis, invented the modern-day Dick Tracy watch. Not only does it look exactly like the timepiece featured in the early comics, but it works just like a phone. Siri, call my brother, and it'll call your brother. It's fascinating. But the story doesn't end there. Tim Cook, the Apple CEO, described that as a little boy, he'd always hoped to see the Dick Tracy watch become a reality. He said, I've been waiting and wanting to do this since I was five years old. He's talking, the 59-year-old Apple CEO was thinking back to 1965, when every American youngster would tell you the coolest gizmo around was the Dick Tracy watch and they were talking about this not all that cool really but in 1965 probably was pretty cool and in the packaging it's very well it's very valuable here's the deal the Dick Tracy two-way wrist radio was a prophetic idea that apple made a reality and now we have what's called the smartwatch Most kids dreamed about this but never believed they'd ever see the Dick Tracy watch actually become a reality. But it has become a reality. In fact, it's even better than Dick Tracy could ever have imagined. As incredible as it is to see the kind of the modulations of something like that, something that is so futuristic that we don't think in our lifetime we'll ever see it become a reality and then there it is. As futuristic this, as this watch was to those in 1946 and 1965, the reality is something far more remarkable, amazing, incredible, unbelievable, and awesome started on the very first Christmas. On that day, God put into motion a plan that would give mankind a brand new future. I want you to think about that for a moment. It may be hard for us to believe, but all of this started in a stable in the little town of Bethlehem. That wouldn't be the place where you and I would probably launch an initiative like that. But that's the place where God started something unbelievably futuristic and truly amazing. A place where hope, would suddenly now be found. Jesus' birth was when God set into motion his plan to give man a new future. And why was a new future necessary? Well, statistics tell us that a lot of people, somewhere during their 40s, evaluate their future and they don't like what they see. Maybe some of you have been there. We call this time frame a midlife crisis. People who are having a midlife crisis often are thought to be struggling with their own mortality. I'm not going to live forever. Is this all there is? Or this is possibly the time when they struggle to come to terms with the fact that their life is at least half over, or maybe even more than half over. Based on the results of a national survey, approximately 26% of those who responded reported of having a midlife crisis already. During this time, some people may regret not choosing a different career path or not creating the life that they always dreamed when they were younger, that they would live someday. The aging process sets in and it becomes apparent to them that they're not as Great a shape as they used to be. Some individuals may develop illnesses, while others will begin to notice the decline in their physical abilities. All of this can lead a person to think that there's not much to look forward to. If this life is all that there is, then the future is bleak. As difficult as a midlife crisis can be, that's not why God sent Jesus to give us a new future. You see, the situation is far worse than we could ever have imagined. Sin had caused man's future to be even more desperate and more discouraging than choosing the wrong career path or realizing that your life is more than half over. So God sent into motion a plan to give mankind a new future. Why was a new future necessary? Sin was the problem. God had created a man and woman, and he had put them in a place called the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lived in a literal utopia where they had everything that they needed to have this perfect life. And at the center of their world, they lived in community with God. Can you imagine? But when sin entered in, it changed their lives. And sin made life into a way of life that was never intended to be lived. The result of that sin, thousands of years ago, has meant we all struggle with sin. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because of their sin. And then life got really complicated. They had to work. They hadn't had to do that before. And there were things like weeds and disease and death, just to name some of what they faced outside of the Garden of Eden. The worst part was man's separation from God. You see, a holy God can't associate with sin. The result is Today, man lives in a broken world, and the cause is all because of sin. Sin continues to complicate life for the over 7 billion of us who live on planet Earth. Why is a new future necessary? Well, there's a second reason. It's because of sin our lives are complicated. Wouldn't you like to live just one day? where your life wasn't complicated by your sin or by the sins of others. There's never, it was never the design for life to be this complicated. How does sin complicate a person's life? Something as as simple as one lie told and a person's reputation is damaged. Maybe the focus of the lie or maybe the person who told the lie. A one-night stand happens. No one knows about it, or at least they didn't think. But in one moment, a marriage and a family is suddenly broken apart. Greed takes over and you chase after wealth or stuff. And people get run over in the process. And then when you get whatever it is you're chasing, you realize that it doesn't give you the satisfaction or the meaning that you thought it would. And you look around and all those people you ran over are no longer there. Sin can complicate our lives, can it? As a young man, my temper and my tongue often got me into trouble. Someone would say something or do something And I'd lose my cool. And usually I'd say something back to that person, cleverly wounding them because they were the focus of my anger. Later when I would cool off, come to my senses, I'd be remorseful. But you know the damage had already been done. You can't unsay words. It's difficult to unsend messages. Especially when you send to all, and it was only meant to send to one, right? Sin complicated my life more times than I care to admit. I often went to apologize to that person I had offended, which if I'm being totally honest, I didn't want to do it, but I knew it was the right thing. It wasn't enjoyable, and never once was it easy. Sin even in the simplest of sins, complicates life. So God said, you know what? I love these people too much to not do something to fix this problem that they created. So God introduces his plan to us in kind of an interesting way, in a passage that you may not usually think of when you think of Christmas. It's John the 10th chapter we're going to start with verse 7 if you have your Bible or you want to follow along in your, uh, on your device. John's recording the words of Jesus. And, uh, well, you just follow along as I read it here. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus starts by saying, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus is using this imagery here that's very common to the people of that day. It's a shepherd and his sheep. That was something everyone was familiar with. For our benefit, though, we don't hang out with shepherds a lot. Maybe probably the most of us here are not all that familiar with shepherds. So let me give you a little bit of insight into why he's talking about this. When you think about shepherds, they often kept their sheep in what was called a fold. Like we would, you know, fold a piece of paper. They called it a fold. And that was an enclosure that was you know, constructed to protect the sheep from wild animals, thieves, and also to protect the sheep from themselves because they were prone to wandering off, especially at nighttime. It was part of the shepherd's you know, job to construct this fold to protect the sheep. And Jesus, as he's talking here, is probably talking about shepherds constructing these folds out in the desert or in the open field. Stones would be gathered to build a wall. And stones were really prevalent, especially in the desert. And they would build this wall and then the long branches of a very common tree known as the Dom tree, which was known for its ominous, fearsome, fearsome thorns, these branches were constructed along the top of this crude wall. And that, those thorns would deter any, any intruder, especially a wolf or some wild animal that's trying to get over into the sheep. The shepherd faced constant, constant concern to address the threat of thieves and wild animals, and the sheep themselves, when left undetended, were known to wander off. It's interesting, in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, it's known as the suffering servant chapter. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And in verse 6, listen to what it says. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the shepherd, Isaiah said, long before Jesus was even born. He announced this. And we're the sheep, mankind. And we have wandered away because of sin. So Jesus came and God laid our iniquities, our sins on him. Isaiah prophesied it long, long ago. You know, there were enemies to us as well, but I think we're more commonly prone to wandering than we are for someone breaking in and stealing us. Verse 8 continues this discussion Jesus is sharing. He says, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Jesus is referring here to the religious establishment of his day. They didn't care about the people that they were leading who were part of their religious movement. Shepherds in that day would often give names to sheep. Give them names like long ears or stumpy nose or something like that. Probably kept the lonely days in the wilderness Fresh and a beat. But they would give these names to the sheep, and the sheep would hear their name, and eventually they would realize he's talking about me, and they would respond to the shepherd's voice when he would call them. <coughs> Excuse me. The people of Jesus' day were not listening to the religious leaders of their day because, truthfully, they were strangers to them. Their voices were not the voices of authentic shepherds. In John the 10th chapter, the first part of verse 9, Jesus says this, I am the gate, whoever enters through me, the gate, will be saved. I want us to think about that for a moment. You know, for sheep, salvation is characterized by the idyllic state of safe passage and available pastures. He mentions that later, that they come in and go out in verse 9. And they come in and go out to the pastures. You see, for sheep, if they were safe and they were fed, they were good. It's all good, right? For the believer, though, salvation is similar. It's to live under the perfect care of God. And to trust him for every need. For all eternity. As elsewhere in the book of John, Jesus explains the only way to gain access to this salvation is only through Jesus. He's the gate, he said. Now, a key part of this imagery here is that the shepherd was actually the gate to the fold. If you think about it, it said that it was common among ancient shepherds that once the fold was built and the sheep were in it that the shepherd would actually sleep at the entrance to the fold in order to protect the sheep. And in the purest sense of the words, he was the gate. You see, you had to go through the shepherd to get in or to get out of the fold. He was the gate. The image of Jesus as the gate contributes to a controversial aspect of John's gospel. I think it's a highlight of the gospel, but it creates controversy in the culture in which we live. And that is, John makes exclusive claims that Jesus is the only way to God. Now, in our culture, it's fashionable today to speak of many ways of accessing God. In our age of tolerance, that's seen as a virtue... Many want to say that all religious roads end up at the same place, whether Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, etc. All of these and many more are spiritual journeys that sincere seekers may travel in order to find God. That's what the culture says. To think that one religion or one belief system is the only true smacks of social error, of intolerance. How do you know? To even suggest that one religion is the only religion and others are false is seen in today's culture as narrow-minded bigotry that has no place in our postmodern world. Yet, that is precisely what is going on in this text. Jesus is not just a new way or a better way to find access to God. He says he is the gate. He is the only way to God. Later in the gospel, John records Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Acts, the fourth chapter, Peter's speaking before the Sanhedrin, and he's making the case that Jesus is the one true Messiah. And he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus, he's the gate. John ten nine again, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. I didn't know this until I studied the text again for this message. But that phrase, come in and go out, I learned was a common expression in the Old Testament which indicated following the ordinary procedures of daily living. And the idea here is that living life, daily life, with the confidence of safety because of Jesus. We might say we have a hope. In midlife we look ahead and we see there's nothing to look forward to. It's a steady downhill decline. Except for the Christian who says there's something better at the end of this. And remembering that in the coming and going out of daily life, never forgetting, there is something at the end. Well, the the linchpin of this text is found in John 10.10. And Jesus said this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus has already made it clear that there are those who do not have the best intent of the flock at heart. These thieves come and steal, he says in verse 10, and kill and destroy. Jesus, on the other hand, brings life. And listen to what he says. He says, it is life to the full. And I've been been fascinated with this word for a long, long time. Parasauce. Parasauce the word translated to the full. It's the Greek word parasos. And it can be translated abundant, or it can simply be translated more full. Now, I have the tendency to want to say fuller. More full or fuller. What is this abundant life, this more full or this fuller life that Jesus is talking about? You see, it's common to want to interpret abundant as meaning that this Christian believer's life enjoys a superior life to that of the non-believer. Now, some presume that this means that the believer is happier or more content and even more materially blessed than his non-believing neighbor, but those are not necessarily guaranteed. Such an interpretation would be a a severe contradiction to both the experience of believers— who have suffered horribly because of their faith, and for a conflict with Jesus' own call to self-denial that we find throughout his teachings. The life that Jesus came to provide is not physical, but spiritual. It is true, though, that when you live this spiritual life, he's calling us to, naturally it overflows into every aspect of our physical existence as well. Life embraces all that it means to be alive in the world and firmly attached by faith to the living Lord. A more correct meaning of perissos would see this abundant life as equal to the frequent expression John uses when he talks about eternal life. This life is abundant in the sense that it is inexhaustible. It never runs out. Eternal life is a never-ending life because it comes from the eternal, inexhaustible God. Therefore, it may be superior to the unbeliever's life in that it is full of hope and it is full of the blessings of God. We have victory over sin because of the superabundance of God's grace, and that grace never runs out. Now, I want us to double back to the Garden of Eden just for a moment. That was a really cool place, and sin wrecked utopia. Remember, Adam and Eve lived there in that perfect place called the Garden of Eden. And utopia was the way that life was intended to be lived. That's the way God designed it. And sin wrecked it. And because the world was broken by sin, God sent Jesus to give us a brand new future. We see that in John 10.10. So let's take a look at the plan specifically laid out for us to have this abundant life. And we find it in John 3, verses 16 and 17. You're probably familiar with verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There are three key parts of God's plan to give us this new future, and you probably already know them. But just for the sake of discussion, you'll indulge me. I want to share them with you. John writes first in the very first part of verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world, which reveals the very motive that God had for putting this whole plan into motion. If he didn't care about us, none of this would have happened. But he loves us, John says. God's motive was God loves all of mankind. God's love set this whole plan into motion. Last week, I was reading, I heard it on the radio, and then I looked it up because I thought it was so cool, a story about Chicago Bears linebacker, Cahill Mack. He played Santa Claus last week for his hometown of Fort Pierce, Florida. What he did was his foundation... This all-pro linebacker has this uh, benevolent foundation. He went and paid off all the layaway accounts at the Fort Pierce Walmart, over 300 of them. It was a contribution of $80,000. And Khalil Mack cares about his hometown. This is where he's from. And he wanted to give back to his community. You see, when people give, whether large gifts or small gifts, they often give because of love. When you think about the gifts that you're giving this Christmas, the ones you're most excited about are the ones that are going to people who you love, right? That's certainly true for Khalil Mack. And yet, the greatest example of this kind of love is found in Jesus. God loves you. Never forget that, church. He loves you. No matter what you've done, never forget God loves you. And take note that the only prerequisite of being the focus of God's love is that you have lived in this world. He says, for God so loved the world. So if you're on planet earth and you're breathing air, he loves you. You didn't have to perform. You didn't have to measure up. You didn't have to earn his love because he already loved you. There's a second part of his plan, and that is that God paid my price. He paid your price. He paid the price. For God so loved the world that he, God, gave his one and only son, Jesus. God's mission was for Jesus to come and be the sacrifice for the sins of every person, man, woman, and child, who have put their faith in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, and it's Whoever tells us it's open to everyone, whoever believes in him, that means they put their faith in him, their confidence, their hope is in him, shall not perish. They're not going to face eternal death or what is commonly called hell. But they will have eternal life. It's that abundant life we were talking about in John 10.10. It's called heaven. And then John writes this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came specifically to save you. That was instrumental in giving you a brand new future. If Jesus doesn't come and die to wash away the sins of the world, there is no future. There is that dismal, slow decline to death. But because he came... You and I have been given a new future. And this, the eternal life, the abundant life, starts when you trust Jesus and start following him as a disciple. Let me close by giving you a little geometry lesson. If you look at this this, uh, ray, is what it's called in geometry. I I don't want to get too technical for you all, because in Bible college we studied math. But there is a slide that we have that shows, there it is. Perfect. Now, what I want you to understand are a couple things. First of all, this dot represents when you were born. And I want you to personalize this. If you're taking notes, you might even draw this on your your outline. This represents when you gave your life to Christ. Maybe for you it was when you were 8 years old. Maybe it was when you were 40. It doesn't matter. And this right here says rest in peace. That's when you... Die. That is in the future. I hope no one has died since you entered in here. That's bad for me as a minister to be preaching and have someone die. But this is when you die. So you were probably somewhere in this range, right? Assuming that you've become a Christian. Maybe you're not yet. Maybe you're back here still. It's okay. One of the other things that you need to know from the world of geometry is that this right here, this arrow, it represents infinity. Infinity. So imagine that arrow going clear off into that direction and leaving Fayette County and into the next county and leaving this state and into the next state and all the way around the world and wrapping itself around the world if you choose to do it that way. I think going off into space would even be more cool, right? The truth is this represents infinity. And this right here, from here to that dot, represents your life on this earth. Now some of you look at life and you go, Man, it's not really that great. And all I want you to know is this. If you're in Christ, hold on. You have hope. Because at this moment, when this happens, you're not going to hell. You're going to eternity with God for infinity. And you know where when eternity starts for the believer? It starts right here. Because guess what, once you give your life to Christ, eternal death no longer has power over you. Oh, you'll, you may die a physical death if Jesus doesn't return somewhere in between here, but that's not gonna stop you from being for infinity with God. Jesus came on the first Christmas to give you and me a new future and thank God that he did. And that's why that first Christmas is the best Christmas ever. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we are so grateful for the gift that you gave to us through Jesus. Lord, I know that Christmas is a hard time for some. They're lonely. Some are dealing with health issues. Some are dealing with the loss of someone very important to them, maybe a family member or a friend. This is the first Christmas by themselves, or this is the first Christmas with mom not here, or dad not here, or grandpa, grandma gone. Lord, will you remind us that regardless of what's happening in our world, there is a bright future for everyone who is in Christ Jesus? The challenges of this life aside, Eternity in heaven is out in the distance for us. God, thank you for the hope that we have because of that. Lord, I pray for that person, that man, that woman, that student that's in here this morning that may not have put their faith in Jesus just yet. I pray, God, that you will speak to their heart this morning and know that they can talk to me down front, call me this week, email me, whatever that works best for them. But I want to talk to them. I don't want them to miss out on the, this new future that you're offering to us, Lord. Lord, I close by just asking you to help us keep our focus on you this season. We talk about the best Christmas ever, and then we get caught up in all the the busyness of Christmas, the traffic, the mall, the stores, packages being delivered, are they are they going to be stolen, all those things. And then some of us, we're going to be around family members. And uh, they're going to want to talk about politics or they're going to start an argument. There's one always seems in every bunch. and. God, will you just help us to pump the brakes a little bit and step back and remember you're the focus of this season and not lose sight of the fact that there is a day coming when we're going to be with you for infinity. And I praise you for that, God. I pray that could change the dynamics of this year's Christmas for the better. Lord, we praise you for all you did for us. On that very first Christmas, we pray this in Jesus' name.